Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. So uh, today we are continuing in our autumn series, which is a series that we called that we're calling Disciple, which is exploring and talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what being a Christian is all about, right? Just simply being a disciple of Jesus, learning how to be his. We, we also could use the word apprentice, actually apprenticing under Jesus. And what we've been saying is that discipleship is about three primary goals. It's about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And, and over the last several weeks, we've been exploring what each of those things means. And one of the things we've been saying is that in order to be with Jesus, to become like him, and to do what he did, we've got to embrace the practices, the lifestyles, the habits of Jesus. Uh, sometimes in the church, we call these spiritual disciplines. And when we embrace these, what the, the, the net effect of them is that we begin to become like him. We begin to, to simply enjoy his presence like we were just singing about. We begin to do the things that he did. And so we've been just going through some of the habits of Jesus, things like uh, prayer, things like worship, things like uh, community, things like uh, uh, Sabbath. And last week we talked about fasting. And today what I want to talk about is the practice of Scripture, the practice of Scripture. Now, what does that mean? Well, I define it this way. The practice of Scripture is the lifelong study and application of Scripture to our lives. Pretty basic, right? The lifelong study and application of Scripture to our lives. But I'm aware that in this room, when I bring up the Bible, we've got a whole range of responses when it comes to the Bible. Some of you, in fact, many of you, I'm sure, in this room, you love the Bible. You, you, you have found it to be an indispensable treasure in your life. You you believe it's the inerrant Word of God. But then there's others that might think, well, the Bible, it's a good book. It's got lots of interesting history. It teaches us about what ancient life was like. It's got some good moral principles and teachings that I can apply to my life. But maybe, you know, seeing it as the Word of God, that's maybe taking it a bit further or a bit far. And others of you, you might feel more kind of just disinterested in it. It's like, well, it's, it's irrelevant. It's outdated. It's boring. I, I really don't, the Bible doesn't really have any intersection with my life at all. Others of you might feel like it's, you might be more skeptical. You might look at the Bible as just a book, a book full of fairy tales. And some people might even feel, uh, have a really antagonistic attitude towards the gospel. They feel like it's something sinister, something dangerous, something that's used to oppress people. So wherever you are on that spectrum, whether you're here in the building or whether you're watching online, we're so glad that you're here. And today I want to talk about the practice of Scripture quite simply because Jesus embraced the practice of Scripture in his life. Jesus lived his life formed by and shaped by Scripture. And we know that just because that's how Jewish culture was at that time. And we know that because of what we see in the scriptures and what the gospels tell us. And so today I want to take some time to look at what we see about the practice of scripture as we read through the gospels. And when I say scriptures, I should say that when we talk about Jesus studying the scriptures, 
we're talking about what we know as the Old Testament because, of course, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So Jesus's life was formed and shaped by the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it was such a significant uh, aspect of life in first century Jewish life that, that boys ages 4 to 12 were, were uh, uh, intentionally studying the scriptures, and in fact, uh, especially the first five books, what's known as the Torah, you know, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jewish people know that as the Torah. And so at these boys, at age, starting at age four, they would begin to study the Torah. <laughs> and and it, was, it was a bit more intense than your average Sunday school. By age 12, most Jewish children had memorized the Torah. Imagine that, memorizing the first five books of the Bible. This is why when we read that account in Luke about Jesus being taken to Jerusalem and going up to the temple with his parents, and then, you know, his parents leave to head back to Bethlehem or, or to Nazareth, where they're from, and they realize, oh, Jesus isn't with them, and they go back, and they find Jesus, and he's at the temple, and he's asking the, the religious leaders questions, and he's dialoguing with them, and he's more than able to hold his own at age 12, in part because this intense devotion to learning the Torah from such an early age. After that, from ages 12 to 18, they go on. They continue studying books, the, the, the Psalms and the historical books and the prophets. And, and by the time they reach 18, they have been thoroughly immersed in the scriptures in these formative years of their lives. And they have a deep knowledge of and awareness and understanding of the scriptures. But if you think about it, that's kind of interesting because this is obviously centuries before the printing press, right? So these people, they didn't have copies of the Bible or copies of the Torah on their shelves. All uh, copies of Scripture were done by hand by scribes. They would meticulously write it out, and, and uh, uh, they, they were very slow to be copied, and they were very expensive. In fact, scholars estimate that uh, a copy of the Torah scrolls, so the first five books of the Bible, would cost the equivalent of 75,000 pounds today. Now, as you can imagine, most families did not have those kinds of resources laying around to spend 75,000 pounds on books. And so what did they do? Well, communities and the little villages, they would, they would pool all their resources together and they would save up over time. And together, they would buy a community copy of the Torah. And it would stay there in the synagogue. And during the day, they would pull it out. And, and what, what they would do is every week, there's a, a portion of the Torah, the Torah reading that they would look at. And they would uh, have it out during the day, and people could come in. They could read it for themselves. They could memorize it. They could study it. Schools of children would come in. Together, they would be trained in it and memorize it. And they would be looking at it all week until Saturday rolled around, the Sabbath service. Then they would have it read to them, and then there would be a message on it. There would be a sermon on it. So they were effectively doing the Bible in a year as a community. And the Jewish community has been doing this for centuries. This has been going on for a very long time. And you know that story in uh, Luke 4 where Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, he reads from Isaiah 61. Remember that story? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, set free the captives. A lot of people think what was happening at that point was that just happened to be the Torah reading for the week, that, or that the scripture reading for the week. And Jesus was the reader, and he goes up and he reads that passage. 
and suddenly the Spirit of God falls in the room and he says, today, in your presence, this passage has been fulfilled and launches his ministry. So this is the world that Jesus was raised in. This is the world that he was immersed in. It was a world where he was immersed in Scripture, formed by Scripture, shaped by it. And you can see this in his teaching. And so when we look through the Gospels, we see Scripture is all over the place. So I've got a few statistics here. 10% of Jesus' recorded words. There's about 1,800 verses of G, uh, that, that are recording what Jesus actually said. About 10% of those are Old Testament quotes or allusions. He quoted from 14 different books of the Old Testament, all five books of the Torah, the Psalms, and eight of the prophets. The book he quoted for, from most frequently was Psalms. He quoted, he's quoting from it 16 different times. Um, Jesus responded with the phrase, it is written 17 times. And the other interesting thing is if you read about how Jesus recounts the Old Testament, you see that he's affirming it as factual. You see that he, he's affirming the events that took place that the Old Testament t- tells us about, including the ones that people tend to be skeptical about. Adam and Eve, uh, uh, Cain and Abel, the flood, Jonah and the whale. He talks about it as if it's factually true. So Jesus believed the Old Testament. He, t- he used the Old Testament in his teaching. He was formed and shaped by it. And he built his life around the scriptures. And that's all very interesting. But I think what's, what I want to do for the rest of our time here this morning is I want to take a look at two different stories that I think give us some insight into how Jesus related to the scriptures, like the role that they played in his life. And the first story that I want to tell should be very familiar to you. It's when uh, Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And it, this was probably the most severe test that Jesus experienced outside of the cross. I mean, can you imagine that? The devil himself coming to tempt you. Like, we'd all just probably be like, you know, freak out and pass out or something. You know, it'd just be terrifying to us. So the devil is coming to tempt you. What, what would you do if you knew the devil was coming to tempt you? How would you prepare yourself, you know? Run away, run away. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what I would do. But what's fascinating to me in this passage is that Jesus, well, we talked about last week, he did two things. He embraced fasting in a big way, and he leaned on, he relied on, he appealed to the authority of the scriptures. So let's look at the story here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I love that passage. I said this last week, but that is a great example of biblical understatement. Of course he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And in Matthew's account, he finishes the verse, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. And what's happening here is the devil is trying to get Jesus. He's tempting him to, to satisfy his appetite, to satisfy his hunger by using his power to, to, to do this miracle. Now, I think this was no 
empty temptation. I think Jesus could have done this, but Jesus knew that would be an illegitimate use of his power. Remember, that, that's what we talked about this last week, that our appetites often tempt us to get things that are, are legitimately, that, that's right for us to want, but try to get us to get them in illegitimate ways. It's not wrong for Jesus to be hungry after 40 days, but for him to use his power to satisfy his flesh was an illegitimate use of his power. And so he reminds, he, he's, you know, what do you do in that situation? He thinks, well, the word of God says, I need the words of God more than the bread that, that, that I might be able to create for myself. So then the devil tries another tactic. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus responded to him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13. See, the devil, again, he's trying to get him to take a shortcut to his destiny. Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the king of kings. In many ways, this is exactly where Jesus will one day end up. But the devil's saying, hey, if you just worship me, you can take a shortcut to this. And this temptation, it was a real temptation because there's no cross in this scenario. And so Jesus goes back to the word of God again, and he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In other words, devil, there's, no, there's nothing, the Bible says there's nothing you can offer me that is going to cause me to worship you because there is only one worthy of worship. It's the Father. And then we get to the third temptation. And, and I think this one is especially interesting because it's like the devil figures out, oh, Jesus keeps quoting the scripture back to me. Well, two can play at that game. I'll quote the scripture to him. Now, this is an interesting thought. Did you know that the devil knows the Bible? He knows it really well. He doesn't like it. He doesn't believe in it, but he knows it, and he wants to use it to twist and manipulate God's word to cause us to actually be separated from God. You see, there's a lot of people that know the Bible really, really well, but are actually enemies of God because the Bible has somehow been corrupted or twisted from its true meaning. So let's look at the story here. It says, the devil, uh, next verse. Oh, no, this is it. Sorry, you're right. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, he's questioning his identity all the time, hammering on that. Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91 here, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is one of the messianic prophecies. Of course, Jesus would have known this, and the devil is using it and saying, hey, this is the promise concerning you. God is going to protect you. Jesus answers, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus knows that, 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 that this temptation, that Jesus knows that, that what the devil's doing is he's taking a legitimate promise that he's given it, and, and it's a misapplication. What he's trying to tempt Jesus to do is a misapplication of what this scripture is promising. He knows that actually the greater truth in this scenario is, is to not put God to the test. 
And we actually know that God does fulfill that promise because every time, as you read through the Gospels, his enemies try to harm Jesus, they can't do it until the appointed hour when he goes to the cross. God does protect him. He does fulfill that promise, but it's not going to fulfill it by Jesus, you know, jumping off a high building and expecting him to be, expecting gravity to not take its natural course. So I think this is really important for us to understand because uh, if the devil tried to twist the scriptures to manipulate Jesus into disobedience, he is certainly going to try to do the same thing with us. And that's why it's important for us to not just know the scriptures, to be familiar with them on a casual basis, but to have the Holy Spirit to help us apply the scriptures. We need to read, not just read and kind of process it on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us to interpret it, to help us know how to apply it. When there's truth that is held in tension, you know, which one are we, are we doing in this scenario? God, you know, what, what do you want me to do here? We need the Holy Spirit to help us. But the main thing I want you to, to get from this story is that Jesus turned to Scripture to refute temptation. And this is the great thing about Scripture. It is a refuge for us. It's a source of strength. When you're experiencing temptation, it, it, it's, it, you know, whether your temptation is towards anger or lust or whether it's towards fear or anxiety or whatever it is that you're dealing with, the, the, the Scriptures are a place that we can go to. It's a firm foundation. It's a solid rock that we can stand on. And, and what happens when we experience temptation is, is there's that pull that you feel that, that says, hey, whatever is being offered to you, it feels like life. You want it. You want to, it it's going to soothe the ache that, is, that you're feeling. And so maybe you want to reach for that extra drink. Maybe you want to eat too much. Maybe you want to share gossip. Maybe you want to uh, uh, be bitter and vengeful towards somebody. Whatever the temptation is, it looks appealing, doesn't it? And it can be, things get really fuzzy in those times. Things get really unclear, and you begin to think, well, is it really so bad? And we start making justifications, and we start rationalizing things, and pretty soon we've talked ourselves into some pretty horrible stuff. But this is what the Word of God is there for. It, it reminds us, it pulls us back to the truth that, that, that uh, grounds us in what is true, what is right, and what is good. It's a refuge for us. And this is why memorization is so important, by the way. You notice in those passages that, that Jesus, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't just be like, huh, turn stones into bread. Uh, let me Google verses about turning stones into bread. He, he couldn't even whip out his Torah scrolls. You know, he couldn't be like, huh, that's a good one. Just a second, Satan, let me uh, get out my scrolls here. And what's that verse? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 man shall not live by bread alone. He didn't, all, these, all these verses had been committed to memory long before. And Jesus, you know, when we memorize, what happens is we're giving the Holy Spirit material to work with. When you, when you learn the Word of God, when you memorize it, uh, what he'll do is, you know, you, you, might forget, you might memorize it and then forget about it. I mean, this has happened to me a number of times. I've memorized stuff and I'm like, oh, I can't remember it. But then you'll be in a situation and up it'll pop and you'll, just, you'll totally remember it in that moment. And that's the value of the Word. When you immerse yourself in the Word of God, you're giving the Holy Spirit material to help you, to strengthen you, to rescue you from temptation. So if you're battling temptation in an area, and, and who isn't, really? I mean, I'm not, but you might be. No, I mean, we're all facing temptation at one point or another, but if you're facing a persistent temptation where you're just getting hammered by a, a desire that you know is not of God, then I want to encourage you to find Bible verses that address that topic and commit them to memory. And every time that temptation comes up, I want you to say it. 
recite it out loud. <laughs> Quote it to the devil. You know, do what Jesus did. Uh, turn to these scriptures to refute temptation. Um, one example of this is uh, Joe Ewan. He's a board member of our church and longtime pastor from Scotland. He's been here and preached on a, a few occasions. He, for a long time, struggled with anger and just couldn't seem to kick it. And so finally, he decided, I need to I need more of the word in me. And so he memorized Psalm 37, 8, which says, Stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. So he memorized that passage. And then every time he got angry, he would quote it to himself. And, And it was a process. I don't know how long it took. But his testimony is that as he just kept reciting that that passage, it just went deeper and deeper in him until something shifted and anger lost its hold on him. So I want to encourage you to turn to the Word of God in places of temptation, in places of weakness. The Word of God is a solid ground for you to stand on. It's a refuge for you. So let's look at another story. Uh, This comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it tells in chapter 22, we're told about a theological debate that Jesus had with some of his opponents, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were an influential Jewish sect. Think of them as like a political party. And some of their major party platforms were that they didn't believe in the afterlife, and they didn't believe in the existence of spirits. And they knew that Jesus did believe in those things, and they thought they had an irrefutable argument to shut Jesus down. And they thought they would go and shut down this little upstart rabbi, you know? And so they come to him, and he tells us a story starting in verse 23. It says, That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. This is the the, the paradigm that they're operating off of. So like, you know, it says this in the Torah, Jesus, remember this? And then they carry on with this crazy, ridiculous hypothetical. Here they go. Now, Jesus... There were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he let his wife to, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. And then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be out of the seven since all of them were married to her? And I can just see them being like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we got him now. High five. Yeah, burn. We got you, Jesus. Mic drop. Not a good idea to try to convince God that there's no afterlife. Um, I don't think they really knew who they were dealing with there. So Jesus responds to them, and he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Ouch. That's a harsh thing to say to guys who had spent their formative years memorizing the Old Testament. Can you imagine telling those guys, you, you don't get it. You don't know the scriptures. Jesus is saying to them that, well, yeah, they may be able to recite the scriptures. He's saying, you don't really know it. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be asking me this ridiculous question. So Jesus gives them a one-word or one-sentence response to their question. He says, he says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, 
this is a whole sermon right here, and I don't want to get too hung up on this passage, but what Jesus is saying is, guys, you, you don't understand that what the Scriptures are really teaching. If you understood, then you wouldn't even be asking this question, because in heaven, we, we, it doesn't work that way. In heaven, we're beyond marriage. We, we become like the angels. This is, this is not a relevant question for you to be asking. And then he continues, and he says this, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, the crowds were astonished, but for, for most of us, we're like, huh? <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're more confused because we don't really get the context of what's happening here. But you've got to understand Jesus is talking to deeply devoted Jews that, that knew their scripture really, really well. And what he's saying to them is that God is the God of the living. In other words, God didn't say to them, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He's saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're not dead, or they may be dead, but they're alive and well in me. They are alive and well. The afterlife totally exists. Otherwise, God wouldn't put it this way. He, he wouldn't have introduced himself this way. But there's something here that I want you to notice that I think is a real key for how Jesus wants us, how he read the scripture, and how he wants us to read the scripture. If you go back to it, it says this. Notice the assumption that he makes about how they should read this. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Now, now hold on a second. That's a really confusing statement for Jesus to make. Well, that's a really confusing statement because Jesus is actually, this whole story here is referring back to Exodus at the, when Moses is at the burning bush. And, and, and Moses is asking God, he, he's, he's, you know, there is, God appears to him in the burning bush and God commissions him to go back to Egypt to bring his people out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, I am. And he says, I am. What does that mean? And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the story that Jesus is referring to. And yet he seems to expect the Sadducees to receive this as a personal word to them. This is so strange. Like this is a, a, a conversation that happened thousands of years before. And yet Jesus is saying, this is what God said to you. So what's my point here? My point is that, is that Jesus was saying that these guys, that, that saying that when you read the Bible, you've got to read it as God's personal word to you. Rather than reading it just as a historical record, you know, we, we often read the Bible and we think, hey, these guys, they're just, you know, we're reading about people that lived thousands of years ago in a different time and a different culture, and it doesn't really apply to me. Jesus is saying, no, the word of God is alive, and it, it, God can apply any passage of it to your life. And this is what we would expect. You know, our God is a God who speaks. He's a communicative, communicative God. And this is so crucial for us in our Christian life, and that's why we talk so much about hearing God's voice. We have to learn how to walk and talk and listen to and hear God to guide us through our daily life. This is vital for the Christian life. But the primary way that God speaks to us is through the Bible. The primary way that he speaks to us is through the Bible. And, you know, that, that, not just in simply reading the Bible, although that's a good place to start, but God speaks to us through the Bible in some really amazing ways. He, he, he literally makes it come alive. Remember what it says in Hebrews 
chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus is, or the, the, the scripture is saying that this is alive and active. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I, 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 think it's, I think of like coals in a hearth, you know? Uh, if you go and you blow on them, they, they glow. If, they're, you know, if there's been a fire going and it's starting to die out and you blow on it, suddenly they glow orange, right? You know, you see the fire inside them. I think this is what happens when God breathes on his word. The Holy Spirit comes, he blows on a passage of scripture and suddenly it glows, it illuminates for you. You've probably experienced this. Have you ever, has anybody ever been reading the Bible and suddenly it's like a passage just jumps off the page at you? It's like it's got highlighter on it. Who's, hands up, who's, who's had that experience? A number of you. You'll be reading the Bible and all of a sudden something just jumps out and you're like, oh my gosh. And it might be a word of comfort it might be a word of wisdom for a situation that you're in. It might be a correction or confronting sin in your life. It might be a, 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 something just to give you hope for your situation. I mean, God can use the word to speak all kinds of things to you. I've had this happen a number of times in my life. Uh, probably my favorite story, though, <laughs> is when I was a second-year student at uni. I was um, having a hard time with God at that time. I was a little discouraged about various things, just struggling in my faith a little bit. And so I decided, I believed this at the time, that God could speak to us through his word. And so I decided, you know what? That's it. I've had enough. I'm going to go out into the woods near my home, and I'm going to read the Bible until God speaks to me. And so I marched off, got my Bible, marched off into the woods, found a nice place, sat down, and I opened to like the Psalms or something. And, and I was so determined that I read for like half a page before I gave up and was like, oh, God's never going to speak to me. And I just started despairing of all life and, and just was you know, praying, pouring out my heart to God. And while I was praying, I noticed that the pages of my Bible began to blow. It was a windy day. Pages were blowing in the wind. And I just got this, this thought came to mind. And I just decided, well, it can't hurt. So I just said, Lord, why don't you blow the pages of my Bible to a page you want me to read? Now, I just want to say this is not a formula. Uh, please, please don't go out and be like, I need a word from God. <laughs> it's, that's, it's, I've never done this before. I've never done this since. I think God was probably like, okay, fine. And so the pages of my Bible are blowing around, and finally I, I'm praying, and I notice out of the corner of my eye that the Bible has stopped blowing. It's, it's just open now to a page, and it seems to be stable. It's not, it's not blowing anymore, even though the winds are still... Uh, uh, still pretty windy. So I pick up the Bible and I look down and to my great disappointment, it was in the book of Ezekiel. I was like, oh. Now I've read the book of Ezekiel before and let's just say Ezekiel is not the most user-friendly book in the Bible. That's when somebody's new to the faith, I don't say, all right, we're going to start with Ezekiel. There's a lot of weird imagery in that book. It, it can be a little, little challenging to read. That's not like uh, uh, Christianity 101. And I was like, oh probably not going to be anything here of value or worth for me in this moment. But I, out of just a curious sense of curiosity, I decided to read it anyway. And, you know, my Bible had like two columns on each page. And I started on the first column, nothing. Second column, nothing. Third column, still nothing. Fourth column, I get halfway down to Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
I will give you, or I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put in you a new heart. And I will uh, 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 remove from you all your idols. And I, will, and I will fill you with my spirit and remove from you all your idols and move you to follow my laws and make you careful to keep my decrees. And, what, and it just jumped off the page at me. Because I had just been praying almost that exact same prayer. The prayer that I had been praying is like, Lord, I feel like my heart is stone, Lord. I need a soft heart. Would you change my heart? Give me a new heart, oh Lord. Would you cleanse me, Lord, from all my impurities? All my... I had been praying these exact same things, totally un... ignorant of the fact that this was right out of Scripture. And yet God brought me right to the very point. And this, for me, was a promise. And he was like, I am going. I have heard your prayer. And I was so excited. And what, what's fascinating to me about that is that text in its original context obviously had nothing to do with me. This was written to the exiled people of Israel who were living in Babylon at the time. This was a promise for them. And yet God was taking it and applying it to my life. He's saying, hey, this, this is a promise for you too. And I was so excited at the time. I was like, all right, here it comes. God's going gonna, to, I'm going to encounter him. He's going to give me a new heart. It's going to be great. And, I, and one day goes by and two days goes by and and, and nothing happened. And I was like, well, what's going on? And it actually took 18 months because with every promise that God gives you, there's a process that has to happen. That's another sermon. You can just kind of explore that one with God on your own for now. But after 18 months, I had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I've told you that story many times, so I won't go into it this morning. But it changed my life forever. And it all started with God directing me to a spot in his word that he wanted me to, to just speak to me from. That's what it means when it says the word of God is alive. It's active. It's not a dead book. It's not just a historical book. It's something that God breathes on and applies to our lives. So to close today, I just want to give you three practical tips about how to read the scriptures based on what we've been talking about. First one we've already kind of covered, which is to come with expectation. When you open up the Bible, come with an expectant heart that God is going to speak to you, that this is the word of God. And I know that might seem simplistic or kind of childish, but Jesus said that, that we're to have faith like children, right? And this is just, a, we come to the Bible and we believe he wants to speak to us. How would we read our Bibles differently if we approached it as if it was addressed to us? You know, Jesus presumes in this passage that we just looked at that we should hear God's voice and discover God's mind when we read our Bibles. Our reading is God's speaking. Secondly, we need to come with humility. And the way I see it, this is all about the posture, the attitude that you take towards Scripture. And the way I see it, there's, there's three, three different attitudes that we can have towards the Bible, three different postures we can take towards it. First, we can put ourselves above it. We can evaluate it based on our own reasoning and our own logic. We can evaluate it instead of letting it evaluate us. We can dismiss it. We can disagree with it. We can put ourselves as an authority over it. And there's plenty of people, you know, who know the Bible, but they refuse to submit themselves to the Bible. They think they know better than what the Bible teaches. So we're critics of the Bible. We put ourselves over it. The second posture is we kind of have it alongside us, but we hold it at a distance. You know, we cherry pick the verses that we like. We, we, we maybe go to it as kind of like a self-help book and an advice column, but it's not something that we build our lives around. 
It's not something that's shaping us and forming us. But the third posture is the posture of humility, and it's when we put ourselves under it. And rather than evaluating the Bible, we let the Bible evaluate us. We let its authority direct and shape our lives. It becomes the plumb line for us. It becomes our refuge. It becomes what is true in the midst of the shifting sands of our culture. We just keep, we, we, we submit ourselves to the authority of God's word in humility. And that's the posture that brings transformation. And lastly, I just want to encourage you, when you're reading the scriptures, go slow. I think in our culture, we have this mindset of like, hey, I got to read through the Bible in a year. A lot of us do that. And I'm not knocking that. If that works for you, by all means, stick with it. Uh, but I think for us, it's, we've been trained by school to like, we got to cover a certain amount of material and we got to be able to recite the facts. And, but that's not what reading the scripture is about. It's, it's not about, um, it's the, the point of reading the Bible is not about getting through it. It's for it to get through to us. So go slow when you read the scriptures. If you only read one verse, but God speaks to you through it, that's a win. <laughs> that's, that's the goal, is to connect with God through the scriptures. And sometimes that'll take a little while. Sometimes I have to sit with my Bible open and read for a while before my heart kind of wakes up and I begin to connect with the Holy Spirit and he begins to illuminate his word to me. And sometimes, like you know, I, that takes a while. Sometimes it happens right away, but I want to encourage you to go slow. Take your time. It's like when you have a, a bite, at a, at a, you go out to an expensive meal at a restaurant and you're getting, being served really good food. You don't just want to wolf it down really quickly. No, you want to savor it. You want to chew slowly. You want to enjoy all those flavors. So that's what we do when we're reading. We, we, we savor those words. We, we just read it slowly. We're kind of paying attention to what the Holy Spirit is highlighting. He might point, put his finger on one word. He might highlight a passage like he did for me that day. He might, he might uh, help just make a story come alive to you. You'll see how it applies to your life. But just read or listen as you read. And that takes slowing down. We said this before that, that uh, the, the enemy of the Christian life a lot of times is hurry. And we want to eliminate hurry from our prayer life. We want to eliminate hurry from our reading of Scripture. So go slow. So, as followers of Jesus, we want to embrace the practice of Scripture because Jesus embraced the practice of Scripture. And of all the disciplines, there's probably none more important than this because it's only through the Bible that we can really understand the ways of God and the truth of God. It's only through our study of the Word that, that we can hope to grow spiritually. So I want to encourage you, wherever you're at with the Bible, let's take a step towards it <laughs> this week. Maybe it's actually just opening it up and reading it, or, or uh, downloading a Bible app on your phone and reading it there, whatever you need to do to make it accessible. You know, something I've been using lately is just listening to the scriptures being read to me, because sometimes I don't have time to get through the, the reading that I do, and so sometimes it's just helpful to, to just hit play and let somebody read it to me. There's so many ways that we can take advantage of technology, and actually in our email this week, I'll include some different resources that you can look at to help you, because the Bible, it, it can be a complicated book. You know, people are intimidated by it, and I get that, but there's so many resources out there that are really helpful in actually understanding what's going on. So I want to encourage you to take a step towards the Bible this week, to actually practice the Scripture. Maybe you need to start memorizing 
like we talked about. Maybe you need to choose some, some scriptures that address the area of life where you're struggling with, and you need to commit them to memory. Maybe you just need to read through the Bible. I think all believers need to do that at some point, but just take it slow and ask questions and, and understand what you're reading. Don't just, you know, treat it like a tick box. Or maybe you just need to slowly read through the scriptures. I mean, just real quick, you know, my, my routine right now is I read a little bit from the Psalms, literally like a, one or two verses, a paragraph, and then I will read a little bit from an account in the Old Testament, and then I'll read a little bit from the New Testament. And I don't have to get through that in every Bible reading session I do. I just, I read until something jumps out at me. There's so much in the Word of God. It really is alive. And if we expose ourselves to it, we're giving the Holy Spirit space to work in our lives, and it will change you, and it will transform you to become, to, to become like Jesus and to do the things that he does. Let me pray for you, and we'll close. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in the shifting sands of our culture where, where different trends come and different trends go, you've given us the solid rock to stand on. Lord, help us to treasure this book in our lives. Help us, Lord, to treasure it enough to, to read it, to carefully care for it, Lord, to, to study it, to let it transform us. God, I pray that we would approach this book with expectation that you are going to speak to us and with the humility that, Lord, we are not an authority over this. This is the authority over us. God, would you shape us? Would you make us a people of your word, a people that look like you, that think like you, that talk like you, live like you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.